chapters 19 and 20 of Problems in American Democracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Problems in American Democracy by Times Williamson. Chapter 19. Health in Industry. 197. Industry and Health. Wherever the Industrial Revolution has progressed beyond the initial stages, there has been an enormous increase in wealth and prosperity. At the same time, serious evils have accompanied the transition from a relatively simple agricultural stage to a stage dominated by the factory system. The tendency toward overcrowding in rapidly growing cities, the difficulties of maintaining a normal family life where mother or children are employed in factories, and the danger of overstrain, accident, and disease in industrial pursuits, all these factors render very important the problem of health in industry. Though health in industry is only one phase of the general problem of health, it will be impossible here to exhaust even that one phase. We shall, accordingly, confine ourselves to the discussion of three questions. First, child labor. Second, the employment of women in industrial pursuits. And third, the insurance of our industrial population against accident, sickness, old age, and unemployment. 198. Child Labor, Extent, and Causes There are in this country more than 2 million children between the ages of 10 and 15 engaged in gainful occupations. In all sections of the country, large numbers of children are found in agriculture, this industry generally being beyond the scope of child labor laws. The employment of children in factories, mines, quarries, mills, and shops, on the other hand, is now considerably restricted by law. This is true of all parts of the country. However, child labor is still of wide extent in the United States due to the large number of children found in agriculture, domestic service, street trades, stores, messenger service, and tenement homework. Of the immediate causes of child labor, one of the most important is the poverty of the parents. Where the parents are themselves day laborers, it is often considered necessary or desirable to increase the family earnings by putting the children to work. From the standpoint of the employer, child labor is rendered possible and even desirable by the development of types of work easily performed by small children. In many cases, the tendency of parents to put young children to work is encouraged by the lax administration of school attendance laws. This tendency has also been encouraged by the indifference of the public to the evil effects of child labor. 199. Effects of Child Labor Students of the problem of child labor unanimously condemn the practice of habitually employing young children outside the home. Where poorly paid children compete with men and women, they serve either to displace adults or, by competition, to lower the wages of adults. The effects upon the children themselves are injurious. Stunted, crippled, and diseased bodies are the result of steady work at too tender an age. Schooling is interrupted, so that child workers generally develop into illiterate and inefficient adults. When children are forced into gainful occupations at an early age, the family life is disrupted, and proper home training is difficult, if not impossible. 
Still another factor is the greater temptation to vice and crime confronting the child outside the home. 200. Child Labor Laws since 1870, the growing acuteness of the child labor problem, together with an aroused public opinion, has served to increase the number of laws restricting child labor. At the present time, 45 states forbid the employment, in certain industries, of children under 14 years of age. A federal child labor law was passed in 1916, but two years later, the measure was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Footnote. For an explanation of this point, see section 214 of this chapter. End of footnote. In 1919, a new federal law was enacted. In order to avoid the charge of unconstitutionality, this measure attacks child labor indirectly. The law levies an excise tax of 10% on the entire net profits received from the sale of all the products of any mine, quarry, mill, cannery, workshop, factory, or manufacturing establishment, which employs children contrary to certain age and hour specifications. The effect of this 10% tax is so to reduce the profits of the employers affected as virtually to prohibit child labor. By this means, the act prohibits child labor in several important groups of industrial establishments. The difficulty with the law is that it touches only about 15% of our 2 million child workers. It does not affect, for example, the large number of children employed in agriculture, domestic service, street trades, stores and restaurants, messenger service, and tenement homework. 201. Minimum Provisions of a Good Child Labor Law the passage of more comprehensive child labor laws is being advocated by a number of social agencies, notably by the National Child Labor Committee. The minimum provisions of a good child labor law have been set forth by the committee somewhat as follows. As a general proposition, no child should be regularly employed in a gainful occupation who is under 16 years of age. There should be an even higher age limit for child workers in quarries, mines, and other dangerous places. Children should not work more than eight hours a day, nor should they be allowed to engage in night work until they have reached the age of, say, 20 years. All child applicants for industrial positions should first be required to pass educational tests and a physical examination. A good child labor law should provide for a corps of factory inspectors, as well as for other means of securing the inefficient administration of the law. Lastly, it is important that there be close cooperation between employers and the school authorities in the matter of child labor. 202. Increased Number of Women in Industry There have always been women in industry. But, of recent years, the proportion of women so engaged has increased so rapidly as to create a serious social problem. From needlework, domestic service, and teaching, women have spread rapidly into trade, commerce, and the professions. A few years ago, transportation and police work were monopolized by men, but today, women are entering these fields rapidly. Though they outnumber men, only in domestic and personal service, women are numerous in practically every important calling except plumbing and street cleaning. Altogether, more than 8 million women are engaged in gainful occupations in the United States. 203. 
Why women receive lower wages than men. Women generally receive lower wages than men. One reason for this is the physical weakness of women, which renders them less desirable in many types of work. Social conventions, home attachments, and often the lack of venturesome spirit combine to keep women from moving about in search of improved working conditions to the same extent as men. The expectation of marriage causes many young women to neglect to increase their efficiency, and this at least prevents their wages from increasing as rapidly as those of young men who undergo consistent training. The trade union is still little developed among women workers, a factor which often prevents higher wages from being secured. Low wages are often traceable to the fact that there is an oversupply of girls and women in the labor market. Large numbers of girls and women are partially supported at home and are able and willing to work for pin money only. Many employers take advantage of this fact to offer very low wages. 204. Legislation Regulating the Labor of Women Although it would seem desirable to keep young children out of industry altogether, there is a general agreement among students of the problem that the labor of women ought to be further regulated rather than actually prohibited. A number of states have already enacted laws designed to safeguard women in industry. In some states, the number of working hours for women has been cut from 11 to 9, while in other states, the maximum number of hours during which women may work is 8. Some states prohibit night work for women in industrial establishments. The great majority of the states now provide for proper rest periods, guarded machinery, the ventilation of workrooms, and, where practicable, seats for women employees. To the extent that women actually do the same amount and quality of work as men, there is a growing feeling that men and women ought to receive equal pay. 205. The minimum wage. A minimum wage law is one which specifies that in certain occupations, laborers may not be paid less than a stipulated wage. The aim of the minimum wage is to protect the laborer against employment, which, under freely competitive conditions, does not pay wages high enough to guarantee a decent living. The first minimum wage law in the United States was passed by Massachusetts in 1912. The movement grew rapidly, and by 1921, more than a dozen additional states had adopted the minimum wage laws. In some states, the law applies only to specified industries. In others, it covers all occupations. In some states, the law covers only the employment of women. But in most cases, the principle of the minimum wage applies to women and minors under 18 or even 21 years of age. In some foreign countries, the minimum wage is also extended to the labor of men, but in the United States, men are everywhere exempted from the operation of such laws. 206. Arguments in favor of the minimum wage. The champions of the principle of the minimum wage advance a number of arguments in its favor. It is contended that no industry is socially desirable if it cannot pay a living wage, for when wages fall below a certain minimum, poverty, ill health, and vice are natural results. When laborers are themselves unable to improve their economic position, it is said it becomes the duty of the state to guarantee them a living wage. 
Another argument in favor of the minimum wage is that it not only eliminates considerable poverty, but it makes possible a healthier and more contented labor force. It is claimed that strikes and social unrest are partially eliminated by the minimum wage. 207. Arguments against the minimum wage. In spite of the rapid spread of minimum wage legislation in this country, the principle has met with considerable opposition. It is claimed by some that where poverty is due to bad personal habits, the mere payment of a higher wage will not abolish poverty. It is also urged that because of price changes and because of differing concepts of a standard of living, it is difficult to determine what is really a living wage. Some employers maintain that the minimum wage is contrary to economic law, since it forces the payment of a wage which the laborer often does not earn. The compulsory nature of the minimum wage is also opposed on the grounds that it constitutes an undue interference with individual rights. Footnote. Formerly an important argument against the minimum wage was this. There are large numbers of people who cannot earn the minimum wage, and because employers will tend not to employ them, such persons will have to be supported by charity. The force of this argument is reduced, however, by the fact that most minimum wage laws now make special provision for the part-time employment of such persons. End of footnote. 208. The Risks of Industry in spite of the fact that most states now have detailed laws providing for the guarding of machinery and the supervision of dangerous occupations, a half million persons are injured or killed annually in industrial employments in the United States. A considerable amount of ill health is traceable to working with drugs and acids. Continued work in dusty mills and shops as well as long exposure to the excessively dry or excessively moist atmosphere required by certain manufacturing processes also gives rise to occupational diseases. Old age frequently brings poverty and distress in spite of a life of hard work. Lastly, the laborer runs the risk of unemployment. 209. The Principle of Social Insurance as a general rule, laborers do not voluntarily insure themselves against illness, unemployment, accident, or old age. This is partly because they lack the necessary funds, and partly because they lack the foresight necessary for such action. If, therefore, the risks of industry are adequately to be insured against, the initiative must be taken by someone other than the laborer. As a result of this situation, there has developed the principle of social insurance. Social insurance, as distinguished from insurance by trade unions or private agencies, is compulsory and is administered, or at least supervised, by the state or federal authorities. From the standpoint of the community, social insurance may be justified on four grounds. First, the risks of industry are largely beyond the control of the individual workman, and hence he ought not to be held wholly responsible for the penalties which industry may inflict upon him. Second, the community gets the benefit of the laborer's efforts, and thus ought to feel morally obligated to safeguard his employment. Third, an injury to the laborer restricts the productivity of the community by crippling or removing one of its productive agents. Fourth, Compulsory insurance is a social necessity, for where nothing has been laid aside for a rainy day, the interruption of earnings subjects the laborer and his family to hardship and disaster. 
Wisely administered social insurance prevents a great deal of poverty and distress, which would otherwise constitute an added burden upon charitable organizations. 210. Insurance against accidents. Accident insurance has been a feature of social insurance programs in Germany, France, and Great Britain for almost half a century. But in this country, it was not until 1910 that the compulsory insurance against industrial accidents began to be effective. Since 1910, however, the movement has grown rapidly, and at the present time, the majority of the states provide for compensation to workmen for accidents sustained in connection with their work. Formerly, our courts quite generally held that when a workman could be shown to have suffered an accident because of personal negligence, the injured person was not entitled to compensation. Under the accident insurance laws of most states, it is now held, however, that the personal negligence of the injured workman does not forfeit his right to receive compensation. In most states, the cost of accident insurance is borne primarily by the employer. 211. Insurance against sickness. Footnote. Sometimes known as health insurance. End of footnote. Compulsory sickness insurance has been highly developed in several European countries, but so far we have left insurance of this type to private effort. The question is attracting considerable attention in this country, however, and it is believed that this form of social insurance will soon be provided for by state law. In 1914, the American Association for Labor Legislation outlined a model sickness insurance law. Such a law would provide a sickness benefit for a number of weeks, arrange for medical care, and, in case of death, pay a funeral benefit. The cost of such insurance would be divided equally between workmen and employer, while the state would bear the cost of administering the law. This cost would be considerable, because illness may be feigned, and hence there would have to be more careful supervision than in the case of accident insurance. 212. Insurance against old age. Compulsory insurance against old age is an important feature of social insurance systems in European countries, but it is very little known in the United States. We are familiar with the federal pensioning of military veterans and with local pensions for firemen and policemen, as well as with state and local pensions for teachers. Such insurance does not, however, touch the question of aged employees in industrial pursuits. Trade unions sometimes provide a measure of old age insurance for their members, but the proportion of workmen affected by this practice is very small. In 1920, a beginning toward compulsory old age insurance was made when a federal law provided for compulsory old age insurance for the civil service employees of the federal government. The question of compulsory old age insurance is also being agitated in a number of states. 213. Should social insurance extend to unemployment? It is contended by many that to insure workmen against the loss of their jobs would encourage shiftlessness and that for this reason the principle of social insurance ought not to apply to unemployment. It is obvious that a considerable share of unemployment is traceable to personal negligence, and it is probably true that insurance against unemployment would discourage thrift and foresight on the part of many workmen. On the other hand, it has been shown statistically that a large share of unemployment is due to crop failures, market fluctuations, 
and other conditions beyond the control of the workmen. Insofar as this is true, there would be a great deal of unemployment whether it were insured against or not. Because, therefore, some employment is inevitable, and because unemployment is in many cases beyond the control of the individual, it becomes necessary, or at least desirable, for the state to insure workmen against this unavoidable risk. Insurance against unemployment has never been tried out in this country, but it is likely that we shall someday follow the example of the leading European countries and include this type of protection in our general program of social insurance. 214. Obstacles to Labor Legislation Labor legislation of the type discussed in this chapter is making rapid headway in the United States. Nevertheless, it should be noted that in this field we are behind the more advanced countries of Western Europe. The chief explanation of this relative backwardness is that the extension of labor legislation in this country has met with considerable opposition. The reasons for this opposition may be summed up as follows. First, the spirit of individualism is so strong in this country as effectively to check legislation which appears paternalistic. The weak position of women and children in industry has somewhat lessened the force of this argument in the case of laws designed to safeguard these two groups, but labor legislation in behalf of men is still regarded suspiciously in many quarters. Second, it is difficult to secure uniform laws among the several states. Labor legislation in this country has been primarily a state concern, but the attitude of the various states toward social insurance, the minimum wage, and other types of labor legislation has been so divergent that the resulting laws have often been conflicting. In many cases, states fear to enact laws which they believe will hamper local employers and encourage the migration of capital to states which are more lenient in this regard. Third, an important obstacle to labor legislation in the United States has been the difficulty of enacting laws which the courts will not declare unconstitutional. The constitutional provision that no one shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law has often been interpreted by the courts in such a way as to nullify laws designed to safeguard the interests of the working classes. For example, a law restricting the employment of women might be declared unconstitutional on the grounds that it interferes with the liberty of women to work as many hours and for as small a wage as they choose. Within the last decade, however, the obstacle of constitutionality appears to have declined in importance. Our Supreme Courts often reverse their own decisions, as well as negative the decisions of the lower courts and it is therefore difficult to ascertain what is truly the trend of judicial decision. Nevertheless, many authorities believe that we are on the verge of an era in which the courts will weigh labor legislation primarily in the light of its social benefit, and only secondarily with respect to how it squares with the technicalities of the Constitution. End of chapter 19. Chapter 20. Immigration and Assimilation 215. Racial Elements in Our Population The federal census of 1920 gave the population of the continental United States as 105,710,620. Approximately nine-tenths of this population is white, while about one-tenth is Negro. 
those who are neither white nor negro namely american indians and asiatics together constitute less than one half of one percent of the population the great majority of our people are either european immigrants or the descendants of european immigrants who came to this country within the last century and a half with reference to european immigration we distinguish three groups the foreign-born the native-born children of the foreign-born and the natives natives include those whose ancestors have been in this country two or more generations on the basis of this classification, about one-seventh of our population is foreign-born, while over one-third is either foreign-born or the native-born children of foreign-born parents. The ease with which immigrants have adapted themselves to American life prevents any accurate classification of nationalities in our population, but probably Great Britain and Ireland Germany, Italy, Russia, including Poland, and Austria-Hungary have, in the order named, contributed the largest numbers. 216. The Old Immigration European immigration to the United States may be divided into two groups, the old and the new. The old immigration extended from the beginning of our national history to about the year 1880 and was derived chiefly from Great Britain and Ireland, Germany, and the Scandinavian countries. Between 1820, the first year for which we have accurate records, and 1880, about nine-tenths of our immigrants came from these countries. The striking features of the old immigration should be noted. In comparison with present-day immigration, it was relatively small in volume. In view of the abundance here of free land and our consequent need for pioneers, the small volume of immigration prevented the rise of serious problems. Moreover, the old immigration was largely made up of individuals who were similar to the original American colonists in political ideals, social training, and economic background. The old immigration, therefore, merged with the native stock fairly easily and rapidly. 217. The old gives way to the new immigration. In the period centering about the year 1880, there was a distinct shift in the immigration movement. Whereas before 1880, most of our immigrants had been Anglo-Saxons and Teutons from Northern Europe, after 1880, the majority of our immigrants were members of the Mediterranean and the Slavic races from Southern and Southeastern Europe. Before 1880, about nine-tenths of the aliens coming to our shores were from northern Europe, and only one-tenth were from southern and southeastern Europe. In the period since 1880, less than one-fourth of our immigrants have come from northern Europe, while more than three-fourths have been derived from southern and southeastern Europe. The bulk of this new immigration has come from Russia, Poland, Austria-Hungary, Greece, Turkey, Italy, and the Balkan countries. 218. Increasing Volume of Immigration Since it is in connection with the new immigration that the modern immigration problem arises, it will be profitable to inquire more fully into the character of the movement after about 1880. Not only has the character of immigration changed since the 80s, but the volume of immigration has steadily increased. Of approximately 35 million immigrants who have come to our shores since 1800, more than half have come within the last 35 years. The peak of immigration was reached in the decade preceding the World War, when as many as a million and a quarter of immigrants landed in this country in a single year. 
this heavy flow was interrupted by the world war but after the signing of the armistice in the fall of 1918 a heavy immigration again set in footnote various classes of immigrants are excluded from the united states by the immigration laws summarized in section 223 of this chapter in addition to these laws, which may be said to constitute the basis of our permanent immigration policy, President Harding signed, in May 1921, a bill relative to the temporary exclusion of aliens who would ordinarily be admissible. This Temporary Exclusion Act provided that between July 1, 1921 and June 30, 1922, the number of immigrants entering the United States from any other country might not exceed 3% of the former immigrants from that country who were within the bounds of the United States at the time of the last census. End of footnote. 219. Distribution of the New Immigration one of the most significant facts in connection with the immigration problem is that our immigrant population is unequally distributed. About two-thirds of the immigrants in this country are in the North Atlantic Division. About a quarter of them are located in the North Central Division, while less than one-tenth are located in the Western and Southern sections of the country combined. Three-fourths of our foreign-born live in the cities of the North Atlantic and the North Central Divisions. 40% of the present population of New York City is foreign-born, while in Boston and Chicago, more than a third of the population is foreign-born. In the smaller manufacturing cities of the North Atlantic Division, it often happens that from half to four-fifths of the population is foreign-born. 220. Economic Effects of Immigration in the earlier part of our national history, free land was abundant and immigration relatively small in volume. After the 80s, free land disappeared and immigration increased rapidly. It was toward the end of the 19th century, therefore, that the economic aspect of the immigration problem became acute. In the last decades of that century, manufacturing developed rapidly and American cities became important centers of population. Large numbers of immigrants were attracted by the opportunities for employment in urban centers. In addition to this factor, immigrants continued to concentrate in the cities, partly because of the spirit of clannishness, partly because of the disappearance of free land, and partly because the development of agricultural machinery reduced the demand for agricultural laborers. Still, another influence was the fact that the unfamiliar American farm was less attractive to the southern European immigrant than was the opportunity of performing unskilled labor in the city. Today, four-fifths of our immigrants are unskilled laborers who are employed chiefly in mining, construction work, transportation, and domestic service. From the economic standpoint, the chief objection to unrestricted immigration is that it prevents the wages of American workmen from rising as rapidly as would otherwise be the case. The newly arrived immigrant usually has a lower standard of living than has the Native American. That is to say, the immigrant is content with less in the way of food, clothing, house room, and education than is the Native. When newly arrived immigrants come into competition with native workmen, the immigrant generally offers to work for a lower wage than the native. But, though relatively low, this wage is so much higher than the newly arrived immigrant has been used to that he feels justified in marrying early and rearing a large family. This adds to the supply of unskilled labor. In order to compete with the recent immigrant, the native must accept relatively low wages, 
In order to get along on these relatively low wages, the native must either lower his standard of living or postpone marriage. Sometimes he has lowered his standard of living. Sometimes he has preferred to retain his relatively high standard of living and to get along on the decreased wage, either by postponing marriage or by permanently abandoning his plans for a normal family life. It is contended, therefore, that an oversupply of unskilled immigrant labor in this country has had at least two injurious results. First, it has kept the standard of living of American workmen from rising as rapidly as would otherwise have been possible. Second, it has caused the birth rate to decline among the native groups. 221. Social Effects of Immigration the tendency of immigrants to concentrate in American cities gives rise to a number of serious social problems. Urban congestion is unqualifiedly bad. It is difficult or impossible for immigrants living in crowded quarters to maintain proper health standards, nor does overcrowding conduce to healthy morals. The foreign-born do not show an unusual tendency toward crime, which is remarkable when we consider the immigrants' ignorance of our laws as well as the ease with which unscrupulous persons exploit him. On the other hand, the children of the foreign-born often show a strong tendency towards crime and vice, a fact which is attributed to the bad social conditions surrounding their homes. The percentage of dependency among immigrants is rather high. This is not surprising, however, for many immigrants must go through an adjustment period in which lack of financial reserves is likely to force them to call upon the charitable agencies for temporary aid. 222. Difficulty of Assimilating the New Immigration Those who made up the old immigration assimilated rapidly. They were relatively like the native stock in manners and customs. The volume of immigration was relatively small, and the newcomers spread out into frontier communities where habitual contact with natives was unavoidable. Those who make up the new immigration have assimilated less rapidly. They are relatively unlike the native stock in language, race, and customs. The volume of immigration is very great, and rather than being uniformly distributed, the new immigrants tend to concentrate in cities where they are often little subject to contact with natives. Members of foreign colonies not only tend to remain ignorant of American life, but unfamiliarity with self-government encourages their exploitation by political bosses. It is admitted by the most careful students that the lack of proper civic ideals among unassimilated foreigners in American cities is a large element in the corruption of our municipal governments. 223. Restrictive Legislation Exclusive control of immigration is vested in the federal government. During the Civil War, Congress actually encouraged immigration. But since 1882, our policy has been one of restriction. In the latter year, the first General Immigration Act was passed, though considerable legislation on the subject was already on the statute books. Supplementary laws were enacted from time to time, the most important piece of legislation since 1900 being the Immigration Act of 1917. A brief summary of this and previous acts will serve to show the nature and extent of federal control over immigration. The chief aim of our immigration laws has been so to restrict immigration as to protect us against undesirable persons. In the interest of health, persons afflicted with contagious diseases, such as tuberculosis and trachoma, 
a virulent eye disease, are excluded. Certain persons whose character is clearly immoral are excluded. Polygamists are excluded. The Act of 1917 excludes anarchists and, likewise, bars from our shores all criminals, except those who have committed political offenses not recognized by the United States. In order to reduce unnecessary tax burdens, as well as to safeguard community health, we also exclude insane persons, idiots, epileptics, beggars, and other persons likely to become public charges. Contract laborers are specifically excluded, the Act of 1917 using the term contract labor to include anyone induced, assisted, encouraged, or solicited to come to this country by any kind of promise or agreement, express or implied, true or false, to find employment. Persons over 16 years of age are excluded from the United States if they cannot read English or some other language. Footnote. Certain near relatives of admissible aliens, purely political offenders, and persons seeking refuge from religious persecution are exempted from this literacy test, however. The bars against Asiatics call for a special word. 224. Asiatic Immigration By Asiatic immigration is here meant Chinese and Japanese immigration, immigrants from other parts of Asia being relatively unimportant. The discovery of gold in California in 1849 caused a large number of Chinese coolies to migrate to this country. This immigration grew steadily until 1882, in which year the entrance of Chinese laborers into the United States was forbidden. Our exclusion policy has been repeatedly reaffirmed, as the result of which there are today fewer than 70,000 Chinese in this country. The majority of these are found on the Pacific coast, engaged as small tradesmen, truck farmers, or personal servants. Japanese immigration to this country did not become noticeable until about 1900. After that date, however, the volume of Japanese immigration so alarmed the Pacific coast states that a Japanese exclusion policy was formulated as early as 1907. At present, the only classes of Japanese that are allowed to reside in this country permanently are former residents, parents, wives, or children of residents, or settled agriculturalists, the latter being Japanese already in possession of land here. There are at present fewer than 120,000 Japanese in this country. Most of them are found on the Pacific coast, engaged in occupations similar to those of the Chinese in the same area. Footnote. Chinese and Japanese students desiring to study in this country are allowed to enter the United States by special arrangement. End of footnote. Those most familiar with the situation are practically unanimous in declaring for the continued exclusion of Chinese and Japanese immigrants. In the case of both races, the standard of living is so much lower than that of Native Americans that open competition between the newly arrived Asiatic and the Native American would result in the latter being driven from the labor market. The most important social reason for the exclusion of these two races is that the differences of race and religion existing between Asiatics and Native Americans render assimilation of the Chinese and Japanese extremely difficult if not impossible. 225. The Future of Immigration A half century ago, the belief was current that an immigration policy was unnecessary since the sources of immigration would eventually dry up. The sources of the old immigration have dried up somewhat, 
but new sources have been opened up in southern and southeastern Europe. Immigration is a pressing social problem, and it is likely that it will be even more pressing in the future. The American frontier has disappeared, and our boundaries are fixed. Urbanization is proceeding at a rapid rate. Industry is becoming more complex. Public opinion is more insistent that such social problems as immigration shall be solved. 226. What shall be our attitude toward immigration? There is no good reason why immigration should be absolutely prohibited. On the other hand, the most public-spirited students of the question believe that the careful restriction of immigration is imperative. Clearly, it is our duty to accept only such immigrants as show promise of becoming capable and efficient American citizens. It is also clearly our duty to accept even this type of immigrant only in such numbers as we can conveniently assimilate. We must not be selfish with America, but we should not be misled by the statement that anyone in Europe has a right to make his home in this country. Those who come to this country are personally benefited, no doubt, but unrestricted immigration may lower the tone of American life and prematurely injure our social and political institutions. America is for the present generation, but is also for posterity. The millions of unborn have as much right to be considered as have the millions now clamoring at our gates. For this reason, the right of an individual to migrate to America must be interpreted in the light of what he will mean to the future of this country. 227. Helping the immigrant in his new home. The readjustment, assimilation, or Americanization of the immigrant is a problem of vital importance. The term Americanization is variously interpreted and must be used with care. Americanization ought not to force the immigrant to give up his native tongue or his old country customs. It ought to be a mutually helpful process, whereby Native Americans would help the immigrant in adjusting himself to his new environment, while in turn the immigrant would be permitted and encouraged to make his own contribution to American life. Since the immigrant has little or no opportunity to contribute to American life until he has become adjusted to his new home, it follows that the most fundamental part of an Americanization program is one of helping the immigrant solve his problems. In carrying out this part of the Americanization program, it is essential that the newly arrived alien be protected against unscrupulous persons who seek to exploit him. Adequate laws ought to be supplemented by the work of immigrant aid societies and other private organizations whose duty it would be to protect immigrants against dishonest boarding houses, swindlers, unreliable banks, and other forms of imposition. Friendly help of this type will do much toward encouraging and inspiring the alien in his new life. Improvement in the immigrant's economic status is an important part of an Americanization program. Not only does the undue concentration of immigrants in cities spell ill health and a great temptation to crime and vice, but immigrant laborers sometimes secure lower wages in cities than they would receive in the more sparsely settled parts of the country. Of considerable interest, therefore, is the recent development of plans for redistributing immigrants into the rural and sparsely populated districts. Since 1907, the Division of Information and the Bureau of Labor Statistics has done valuable work in finding employment for immigrants in rural districts. Much remains to be done, however. 
The school, of course, is an important agent of Americanization. Whether or not the immigrant retains his old country language, he ought to learn to speak, read, and write English. The school is likewise an important means of instructing the newcomers and their children in the essentials of American history and government. Where the school is being used as a real community center, the institution becomes truly a method of introducing the foreign-born to the everyday activities of American life. The increasing emphasis upon the racial traits of different immigrant groups, with a view to encouraging unique contributions to the culture of the community, deserves special notice. Americanization measures of the type touched upon in this section help to build the nation on a sound foundation of friendly and intelligent cooperation. End of chapter 20